0: Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Good evening, and welcome to another episode of the Sample Chapter Podcast. (laughs) All right, I can't keep that up the whole time welcome back everybody this is episode 40 of the sample chapter podcast that's right this is the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books (laughs) oh man it's halloween i hope you have a lot of fun plans for halloween i know i do i've already been dressing up at my other job dressed up as the dread pirate roberts at uh, at my night job the other night and I uh, got some plans for this week. I also have big plans for you know late night Halloween kicking off NanoRimo that is National Novel Writing Month. So any of you other authors out there that are uh, you know experienced in that or maybe you're looking into trying NanoRimo for the first time, hit me up. Let me know. Just just you know what, just look for me on the NaNoWriMo website, you can search Jason Meiske, and you'll find me on there. Add me as a friend, add me as a buddy, and uh, we'll root each other on. I'll add you right back. But that's uh, you know that's NaNoWriMo. I'm anxious for this new story idea I've got cooking. I'm going to work on... I'm, I'm working on the one that I've got right now, but I'm also going to start something new, and that's, that's exciting for me as well. But anyway, this is the Sample Chapter Podcast. Uh, like I said... This is the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Now, where you can find us, uh, we are on our new... We are on the new website, the new show host over at the Libson Network. Very, very happy to be here. Lots of great things going on with it. Uh, I'm really enjoying that the show is now being put out on even more networks than ever before. You can find us on Spotify... Uh, iTunes, you know, pretty much anywhere that you can listen to a podcast, that's where we are now. And so I'm very, very happy to be available to you in all these formats. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for us on either, either one of those and follow us. Uh, you can hit that like button and make sure you don't miss out on anything. I do. We we do post quite a bit on both of those throughout the week. You know, of course, we have our author each week, and then we do follow-ups and throwback Thursdays and different little tidbits here and there. Um, you know, little things that we find interesting, but uh, you won't find anything political. You won't find anything uh, egregious or, uh, you know, too personal anyway. Uh, you know, I try and keep it just about the show on both of those formats. So if you are looking to reach out to us, like maybe you're an author that you'd like to come on the show, or perhaps you know an author that uh, you'd like to have me an interview then reach out to us, either either one of those, you can use either one of those methods, Facebook or Twitter, or you can contact us with email at samplechapterpodcast at gmail.com, shoot me an email, and I will email you right back, and we'll, we'll set something up. I totally forgot last week, I wanted to make sure and thank our sponsor, U Store All. they are still our sponsor, and yes, I, I don't want to miss out on that, but U Store All of Warrensburg, Missouri. They are the premium self-storage place in the Warrensburg area with non-climate control and climate control. They have everything that you're looking for. Military discounts, 24-hour video surveillance on more than 40 cameras. And, uh, oh man, they just got some brand new 5 and 6 megapixel cameras came in the other day. Wow, the manager was showing me what these things are capable of and Unbelievable. Your goods will be safe if they are stored at u Store All, So check them out online at UStoreAll.net. That is the letter U S T O R A L L.net. So this week, I'm going to get right into this week's guest uh, because it's Halloween. Ha! <laughs> and I know he is a big fan of Halloween. Yes, as you saw, the name on the uh, the name on the marquee out front Okay, we, yeah, we don't have a marquee, but it's theater-related. And I think that's uh, appropriate for our guest this week, which is Kevin Carr. Kevin Carr is the host of the nationally syndicated show Fat Guys at the Movies. I've been listening to him for years now. And it, he's a lot of fun to talk to. I, we've been corresponding. Uh, you know, he hears from lots of people, so it, it took him a moment. But uh, it was kind of funny. We got to catch up on a couple old old, old messages I'd sent him, and he realized, like, oh, that was you, okay, yeah, and, but talking to him today in this episode, you're gonna hear, we got along fantastic, uh, we had a lot of laughs, it was really fun talking to him about, you know, movie history, literature history, because he is very well versed in, uh, in literature, uh, which I, I think, uh, you know, you would need to be in that kind of job, but it's not just because of his movies that uh, he's versed in that it's also because he is a writer in his spare time he has written a lot of books as it turns out i knew of some but i was not aware of his wealth of uh, books that he's got so he's got quite a few things out there Uh, today we're going to be talking about a few of his books and you're going to get to hear not just a sample chapter but you're actually going to hear a full story from one of his books uh, the ghost readers uh he's got a short story in there called paperweight that you get to hear it's got a little bit of <laughs> with him being a film critic i can only imagine where the inspiration for this story came from you'll get what i mean once you hear this so <laughs> i'll leave that up to you to find out what i'm talking about by listening to the rest of the show so i'm gonna go ahead and get us on over to our episode with kevin carr Welcome back everybody. It's another episode of the Sample Chapter podcast. Today I am I am overjoyed. That's what it is. I'm overjoyed cuz I am I'm am, I am having the pleasure of talking with nationally syndicated host of Fat Guys at the Movies, horror and sci-fi author Kevin Carr. Kevin, welcome to the show, man.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It's great to be here. And and it's such a great introduction too. I'm always so humbled when somebody introduces me like that. The checks in the mail, I'll send it to you later. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, man. Well, it's it's absolutely my pleasure. Uh, you know, for for me, on my end, I've been listening to you for years, so this is awesome to get a chance to talk to you. And, yeah, you're, you're just as great in person through Skype as, uh, as what you're on the radio, man.
1: Oh, thank you. If we ever meet in person, I promise I'll take a shower. So we'll keep
0: that up. <laughs> the beard's a little longer than I was expecting, but uh, then your picture. It's, a, it's glorious. I'm going to keep it at least through Christmas, and then I'm going to dye it white so
1: I can scare little children. <laughs> I'll wear a Santa hat, and then I'll be like, get away from me!
0: Argh! Oh, it's fantastic. I love it. All right, well, tell the audience a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, as you say, uh, Fat Guys at the Movies is a syndicated radio show that I am on, uh, that I run. And I talk about movies every week, uh, either the new releases. Sometimes I talk about the vintage releases, especially around Halloween and, and as we lead into Christmas, Thanksgiving and Christmas are all sort of special times for me because I talk about horror movies during Halloween. I talk about terrible movies or turkeys during Thanksgiving time. And then at Christmas, of course, I get into the spirit of things. But I talk about um, – and I, I talk about news. I talk about some trailers that are coming out, Some some – DVDs and Blu-rays, maybe some home cinema stuff, Forgotten Classics. It's an hour-long show. You'd have to check your local listings, or you can go to fatguysatthemovies.com and check it out. And You can find out where I'm on the radio there. Uh, And I also call into other stations just around the country, a couple dozen other stations each week, to just do one-on-one movie reviews for what's coming out that week.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, it's it's a great show. Uh, We were talking before the show. I mean, yeah, I've been listening to you for a few years now. And and uh, yeah, one of the people who found you on the radio first before I realized you had a podcast. So <laughs> it's <laughs> I, always
1: neat to see. I, I I always find it cool to be recognized off a of radio. Yet I've gotten recognized just at the store before, which is an awkward thing,
0: you know.
1: <laughs> Especially when you're just buying duct tape and and liquor, and then you're like, oh, I'm not doing anything weird with this.
0: But <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. And then, uh, so I guess I'd I would be remiss if I didn't ask this. So now, how how do you get into being a movie critic?
1: Well, that I get that question a lot, and my answer is basically declare yourself emperor. It's your shelf? Oh my <laughs> gosh! Did I get into the liquor and duct tape too early? No, <laughs> declare yourself emperor and start reviewing movies. It's a lot easier now than it used to be. Back when I was like in my twenties, I, I I always wanted to do it. But finding somebody to publish your work is tough, and and mm. you could go to the newspapers, but pretty much like literally the critic who was writing in the big local paper that I used to read when I was a kid just recently retired from the paper where I live now. So it's like trying to get a seat in the orchestra, and mm-hmm. you got to wait for somebody to die, and and then <laughs> you, and you got fifteen people trying to get that same same chair for the violin. Back then, that was really tough. Once the internet came around, you could publish your own uh, blog or a website, and as long as you promoted it properly, as long as you promoted it well, and you went to the movies, and you covered the stuff, and you were consistent, and you had good content, you had quality content, you could get an audience, and that's where I started just actually writing the reviews, ended up moving on into the radio in 2004 when I got a, uh, a friend of mine I knew who liked my reviews, and so I started doing radio reviews. They started sending up through the Clear Channel National uh, news feed, and it just sort of steamrolled from there.
0: You know, and one of the things I really appreciate, too, is, is I, I, I'm a big movie buff. I love movie trivia, and I, my, my wife hates playing movie trivia against me. So she likes <laughs> being on my team. I love that you have a working knowledge of what you're talking about, too. Yeah. As a movie Person myself, it drives me insane when somebody does not know the history of a movie that's got this actor and what uh, it's, it's crazy. And then, but I get to hear that from you. You know well, what's I... going on, uh, you know what this actor, you know, what's the significance of this actor playing this role and whatever. And it's, I love that about the show. Well, that's that always a you, when you're young. A
1: lot of people tend to look at the world as in the few decades in which they've been alive, and you got to watch the stuff that's older. You got to see the classics, and I, I I'm, by no means do I have a comprehensive knowledge of all of cinema, but I've seen a lot of the older stuff. And there's people I know who won't watch black and white movies, and I'm like. You kind of got it. And I even show stuff to my kids. I make, oh, no, we're going to watch stuff from the 40s and, you know, we're going to watch the original Universal Monster movies because those are quality films and they're fun. So I think that that's important. Uh, Or or like when I hear people say, well, the Twilight movies were coming out. You know, it was fun to malign them, but when people say, oh, I wouldn't watch them, I'm like, well, you're not a real critic. You got to go, you got to take the bad with the good. I've sat through all of the Twilight movies (laughs) and. And I'm allowed to complain about them because I suffered the course. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I know we're pretty close in age. I think I've heard you talk about that you and I have something in common that we both saw Star Wars at the drive-in theater when it first came out. Yeah. So, and I remember I was working at a theater when episode six came out. And I remember hearing kids come out going, what Anakin is Darth Vader. Are you kidding me? And I'm just yeah. rolling my eyes and shaking my head going, come on. How did you not know this? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah,
1: it's so funny when, when people are like, oh, I'd love to see the original. I'm like, I saw all the Star Wars movies in the theater. And there's never been a Star Wars movie that's come out that I haven't already seen in the theater first. Yep. So suck at millennials. <laughs>
0: Oh my gosh! Now, in the meanwhile, you also like to you also like to write. You got several books uh, in your belt so far. This is awesome, man. Uh, Tell us what was one of your first things that you wrote.
1: The very first thing I wrote was a short story when I was in second grade called "Water Time," about a kid who lived in a lighthouse with his brother. He tripped and he fell into some something in the water that transported him back in time, and. I don't even remember everything that happened, but it was a really short, it was maybe like 500 words at at best. Uh, but it was the very first thing I wrote, and then I started writing more and more stuff. Uh, and uh, I mean, the first I was writing all through high school, I and mean, even when in high school, I would, you know, on a, on a weekend, I would spend time in front of my parents bought a word processor, so the old ones with the green screen <laughs> yes. that actually you typed it into a disk, and then it would the little typewriter would go and then type out the the Product for you. Mm-hmm. I do that on my time off, and you know, I, I, I actually wrote, I guess it would be considered a novel. I mean, I don't know if it's it be sh- it's short, but it was a novel for you know, sixth grader. You know, mm-hmm. I wrote a, I wrote a movie, it's called Movie Madness. It was about, you know, I'll tell you the story, you can steal it if you want. <laughs> it's about this guy who could project himself into movies like Dennis Quaid's character in Dreamscape, and uh, he had to fight a guy named doomstorm which was trying to bring back the nazis. So yeah, it was terrible. But I wrote this whole this book all longhand. I think it's probably 40,000 words, I think. But I mean that's a lot when you're like 6th grade.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Now, when was your first one published that you uh, that you had out?
1: The very first thing I had published was a story called The Ghost Readers. It was back in 90, 95, I think maybe 94, 95. Uh, I, actually, I got my acceptance letter, my my uh, you know, hey, we're gonna publish your story. Is that was acceptance letter on on December on, on December? Is it December seventh? It's the same day as uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. You know. Oh, okay, yeah. I, Except it wasn't 1941.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, it was, but it was the same day as when I got it. It's a day that would live in infamy. So. <laughs> It was a short story called The Ghost Readers. They published it in a magazine called Pirate Writings, which was a semi prozine back in the 90s, one of the higher class semi prozines If you don't know the, the terminology of that, it used to be you had in science fiction and horror, you had like the, the big ones in genre fiction. You had stuff like fantasy and science fiction, Asimov science fiction, analog. And then for mystery, you had Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine and Alfred Hitchcock. And then for horror, there weren't a whole lot. There was like, I think weird tales came and went a couple times, you know, been around since the 20s, uh, and then there were like semi-prozines that were really nice, there were pulp interiors, but slick covers, and there were ones that were, they were not quite the big level run by big publications, but they were reliable, and 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 had pirate writings was there. Cemetery Dance was one. Was a Aboriginal, I think, yeah, yeah, Aboriginal science fiction. That was both by DNA Publishing. And uh, so you had a lot of. And so like I said, Pirate Writings was kind of like one of those higher level semi-prozines. And they bought my story and they published it. They had this really nice artwork done on it, which was fantastic. (laughs) And uh, you know, I got. What, Twelve bucks for whatever it is that they <laughs> give you for, you know, like a, like a, I don't know, it was like a three thousand word story, if that. And uh, yeah, it was, it, it was, it was a thrill for me. I actually framed the, I took, I cashed the check and I took a dollar out of it. I framed it in a, you know, so, you know, like if you go to like a drive, oh, yeah. they'll frame their first dollar. So I, yep. the first dollar I made from writing professionally. Oh, for exactly, I and mean, I've been writing like I was a textbook writer and stuff like that, and I've been a newspaper reporter. But I mean, for like the stuff I really mattered to me.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, once you're starting to to do the dream, then yeah, uh, yeah, that, yeah, you want to make sure and you capture that moment. So that's awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> now, since then, you've gone on to write several other books that you've uh, you've put out there. Uh, I'm familiar with your zombie series, Gobble um, and Not the End. Let us know tell the audience a little bit about those.
1: Well, those are basically, you know, like one shot novellas that uh, I, I made available on Amazon and they're they're not the full size of a novel because sometimes you want those kind of one hour reads. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that digital publishing has really helped. Back when it when when digital publishing wasn't a possibility, it was very hard those middling size books and stories were really hard to find a home for because of, of cost and paper printing and that sort of thing. So yeah you, you could get them in a magazine but th- but then again you're asking for a lot of space in the magazine so that you'd really have to you'd be bumping out a lot of other stories and it wasn't big enough to like publish in a book format. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen King talks about this in his uh, book Different Seasons. Which were all those novellas, Stand By Me and, and The Shawshank Redemption, all yeah. that stuff comes out of it. But he talks about that, and then he's absolutely right. It was very hard to find a home for anything that was more than 10,000 words or shorter than 60. Mm-hmm. And so, but with digital publishing, you could have these things, and now those are incredibly popular. People want these short reads that they can read on a train or they can read on a plane, and they, they don't have to necessarily read. You know, take many sittings to read, uh, you know, a hundred thousand word novel. Uh, but they also want to have something that's got a little more meat. So that's why I started putting these things out. And it's—I'm never—I'm a huge horror movie fan. I'm a huge horror novel fan. I'm not a big zombie fan, and, and I have my reasons. <laughs> I think it's a bit oversaturated now. Yeah. But I wanted to kind of do my own take on it, and. I can't tell you what the catch is. You kind of have to read the story. I don't want to tell you too much about what the, and I don't even think, cause I know you read Gobble. Yeah. I don't even think I talk about that in that, but in not the end was the first one I said, wouldn't it be interesting if zombies, ever seen it work like, I've seen it a couple times work like this, but I want to try this. And so I have a little catch to the zombies. So it's not just that they're zombies and they're zombies forever. It's not an us and them type thing. And then I also, also took uh, the, a chance to make not the end symbolic. Uh, this is me getting esoteric. I made it a little bit symbolic of something else in our lives. You know, I, I always I always kind of poo pooed that at the younger age of saying, "Well, this thing represents you know capitalism or something like that." Like if you <laughs> if you've ever read um, uh, the Time Machine by H. G. Wells, yeah, you, you've got uh, the the Eloy or the bourgeoisie and the and the uh, what are they called the the monsters? The, they're the ones that live under the ground, that's the proletariat. I mean, it was all a, an allegory for socialism. Uh, and, and, and that's pretty heavy-handed in the book, not so much in the movie. But I, I've always kind of poo-pooed that. And I said, let me try something like that. So I made zombism or whatever we call the zombie condition. I made that uh, symbolic of something in the real world. I don't know if anyone ever catches on to what it is or if they just say, hey, this is a cool zombie story. You know, because I mean, George Romero did that with Return of, or Night of the Living Dead, well, more Day of, Dawn of the Dead, where it was about just rampant commercialism. You know, they're walking through a mall just because mm-hmm. they don't know where to go and they're lost and they're bumping into things, and it was a it's an more you know blind commercialism. Did <laughs> that, Does that answer know. your question? I went off on a real tangent there.
0: Didn't I? <laughs> well, My I guess editor. The- <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm I'm guessing so like not the end was like the the zombie tale, and then Gobble was the uh, how the zombie outbreak took place.
1: Yeah, well, I wanted to tell I, I wanted to frame it in a in a in a holiday setting because I yeah. thought it'd be nice to start releasing these around holidays, so you get a little bit of traction with that. Because uh, anything that I've written that that's horror related tends to do better in October. That's, that makes sense. People are yeah. reading horror stuff in October. So I said, well, let me write one. And, and, and I, it, I, it was Thanksgiving was coming up, and I kind of had this idea. And I said, well, let me tell a, a different aspect of it. And, and in the story of Gobble, it's about this uh, couple that go visit their family. And everyone loves family dinners, don't they? It's always just <laughs> awful sometimes. So it's like the worst family dinner that could possibly happen because people start turning into zombies there. And it's when one of the outbreaks has started, and it's it's multiple places, and they can be traced back, but it's it's not looking at it from the CDC coming in. It's basically here's one of the little stems of the of the zombie infection that makes its way into this house, Mm -hmm. and how people deal with it. But then, of course, you're forced to you know deal with your family and 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 the and the and the horrors that's involved with that.
0: Yeah, yeah, the and the, the little uh, twist to the family dynamic was was outstanding. I loved it. So I, I told my wife. I think I told my wife all about it in an hour long drive. Uh, we went somewhere. I was telling her all about it, and she was like, "All right, well, that sounds great. Where is it?" I was like, what's on my Kindle." And she was like, "Oh, well, I'll never get to read it then because I'm always reading something else." So.
1: You're always busy. I understand. So,
0: well, tell us about uh, Thirteen Turns.
1: Thirteen Turns is a horn uh, anthology. And like I said, I, I wrote pirate – this goes back to like with pirate writings. And I had – over the throughout the 90s, I published a handful of short stories and that sort of thing. The, the publishing world was in mid-collapse at that time. And, and you can look at it now, and it's sort of like looking back at the Roman Empire. And you can say, oh, well, this is when the Roman Empire was in decline. And you can look back at the 90s when print publishing was – really starting to become cost prohibitive in a lot of ways. You know, the old pulp magazines of Galaxy and If and that sort of thing, long gone. And print and and shipping was becoming very expensive. And it was harder and harder to keep these magazines afloat. And that's when I was kind of coming into my own as a writer. So I, I wrote a lot of these things. And I, I had some things published here and there. And the whole thing was you want to get published to the point that it's worth putting your name on the cover. And I got to that point. Uh, in Aboriginal science fiction, my name on the cover, new stories by blah, 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 Kevin Carr. It'd be nice if I actually had a story in that art, in that magazine, someone made a mistake and either they attributed it to me (laughs) and they put that on the cover at one point. I literally have a copy of Aboriginal science fiction with a story with my name on it. That's not me. (laughs) Unfortunately, never got paid for it (laughs) either, but, but I, I, and by that point, the, the, the entire industry was imploding just with the cost and they hadn't quite ramped up online publishing yet. You had this about a 10 or 15 year divide of when print publishing was really going down and then it wasn't until you know you kind of had Amazon and Kindle and Nook and that sort of thing kind of becoming a viable option in the 2000s and then kind of that's where a lot of that indie publishing went and that's where a lot of Uh, The smaller – small that's the small press nowadays. The small press is really, really small if it's print, but uh, that's where small press went. Unfortunately, that happened right when I was writing, so I had a whole batch of stories, some that were published that then disappeared because the magazines went out of business. Uh, Some of them just never got published, so I decided to start collecting them into – uh, either stuff I published, some stuff that was unpublished, collecting them in, into anthologies and making them available on there. Thirteen Terms was the first one. I said I took thirteen uh, uh, horror stories because thirteen's a good number for horror. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's thirteen terms in in the Hangman's news, so that would be the the idea of it's thirteen terms. And so I said, let me throw a bunch of those stories together and and make a uh, you know make an anthology of it. So you've got it's it's a you, you got a you got a whole variety of stuff out there in terms of, in terms of uh, thirteen terms. Uh, there's a lot of um, a lot of stuff I love. I mean, it was one of the one of the earlier things that I actually published. We got a lot of them are, are um, some of them have influence from Frankenstein, the story of Frankenstein, mm-hmm. uh, because that was one of my favorite books. Uh, there's one called Outrageous Justice, which is a response to the O.J. Simpson verdict. Back in the nineties, <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, ashes to a- ashes to ashes is one. That's another one that's that has connective tissue to Frankenstein that I actually shot as an independent film back in the two thousands. Uh, never actually got uh, it distributed, but it, but it, the, there's a cut out there that exists of this. So you know, we've had some had some fun times. There's another one called Warren Finn, which is, is a that was inspired. I was in the movie uh, Shawshank Redemption, mm-hmm. and the I, I i was one of the extras and it was before they they rebuilt the prison as a they 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 re, they remodeled the prison as a as a historical landmark but at this point it was just in ruin and disrepair and i mean the outside looked great we've all seen Shawshank Redemption it's a, but inside the prison it was just it, it was a mess and so i kind of wrote this story that was inspired about that and then <laughs> We once got caught in the prison. We, we, got, we got lost, and we got into the warden's office, and the bus was leaving, so we got out the window. could be in a couple of the other extras. We climbed out the window. So you can say that I'm also – you can put Prison Break in my <laughs> anthology as well, or as in my resume as well. But, yeah, just a whole bunch of just random stories, but it's all horror stories, except for one there's one about – that's a mystery that I thought was kind of neat to just kind of throw in there as a as an aberration.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Uh, so, and then uh, one of your other ones here, I wanted to make sure and touch on too, was Underbrush.
1: Yes, yeah, that's a that's a novel. Uh, it's this was one that uh, I, I I developed. It, it spent many years going back back and forth, finally got onto uh, th- this platform and got it out there. It's it's a it's a story about a, a group of scientists going into the woods to study an anomaly that they found, but they're not told what the anomaly is, and then there's somebody else who's trying to, um, to trying to exploit the anomaly. And it involves – it goes back to my days as – I'm a science my, – my degree, actually, is in science education. So I, I no longer am certified to teach high schoolers, but I was at one point. Uh, and you see how well that turned out. <laughs> but I, I have a history doing science and biology research and that sort of thing. So this has this, this drawn a lot from that in my college experience – it's like to go out and do samples in the woods and figure stuff out and try and you know kind of have these uh, there, there's something in the woods that they're trying to figure out and there's and it's a it, it, these they have white mouse white, white mice in the woods and mm-hmm. white mice are very common in labs but you never see them in the wild because they stand out and they usually eaten by predators but somehow there's this population of them and they have to figure out what that is so a group of scientists or students really are going out there to try and discover what it is and, of course, stumble upon the bad guy also trying to do
0: things. (laughs) That's awesome.
1: Sort of in the vein of sort of those techno-thrillers that, like, Robin Cook would write back in the 90s.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like I've told other authors before, because of this show, I'm going to go broke. Uh, there's so so many great great books, great stories that I hear about, and there's just, I mean, you've got quite the collection here that, yeah, it's going to, my, my Kindle's not going to hold everything, but uh, we'll see what I can do. Hopefully I can get some free time and start reading more. That, that sounds awesome, man. Well, thank and, you. And you're doing more writing, so you got some more coming soon?
1: I've got some more stuff coming soon. Actually, right now, if you want to, you can go to the Fat Guys at the Movies webpage. Uh, there's, a, there's a story, I decided to release it as an audiobook format. Mm-hmm. It's called Bedridden, and it's uh it's it's about 10,000 words. It takes about an hour to listen to. I, I read it. It's read by the author. And it is a story of a guy who has um, – well, I'll tell you the background. Uh, a person very close to me had a stroke around Christmas last year. It takes a long time, and it is very challenging for uh, the person going through it and the caregivers. And a lot of times you have to have them in different facilities before you can bring them home. And some of the facilities were great. Some of the the, the, the rehab centers were, were just wonderful, and some of the physical therapists were great. But there was just one place that this guy was in that was just awful. I mean, it was a nightmare. It's just, everything that could be bad with it would be bad. And it really inspired me to sort of develop this this horror story around it. And, of course, uh, in this one in Bedridden, it's about a guy who had had a stroke and ends up in, like, the worst rehab center you could be. But, of course... It's not just what happened in, in in real life to people that I know. It, it, I make it a little more. It's pretty demonic at times and pretty horrifying. And it turns uses elements of like HV Lovecraft and these sort of faceless, nameless beings that are that are somehow orchestrating this. And the guy's trapped because he's stroke, he has a stroke and he's paralyzed and he can't get out. And it's the story of him trying to. Even know whether he's what he's seeing is real or whether experiencing it just in his head, which can be very confusing for a stroke patient. So there's a lot of you know there's a lot of personal skin in the game on this one, but it's also something that's very cathartic to put out there. So you can go download that now. If you go to the Fat Guys at the Movies page, it's up there. Uh, if you go to the Fat Guys at the Movies podcast feed through iTunes, it's there too. You can download it. Uh, so that's one thing that's out there right now. And then I, I'm going to be doing another zombie one-off short. Novella for Christmas uh, called "Not Even a Mouse." So hopefully, and that'll show another angle of the zombie apocalypse.
0: Hmm. I wonder, will the mice be white?
1: I don't know. It, oh, hey, yeah, that's right. They could be. <coughs> they, they could be like a backdoor pilot to, to get you to <laughs> read underbrush. That's right.
0: <laughs> that's one of those things. It, it's, I mean, I, I, I have no idea. So, but that's one of those. Things I always, <laughs> I always like that whenever you get something that ties in with another book, and you're like, oh, my God, yes, i got to go read that now, too.
1: Well, that's right, because it it gives me – one of the things with using mice, because I think that – I'm not going to lie that there's something to do with mice in there. I I never was a huge fan of the movie um, uh, I Am Legend, which is based on the Richard Mathens book. It's been done like a dozen times, but, you know, like the one with Will Smith. But one thing I did think that was neat about that movie is the dogs were also susceptible to this. Mm-hmm. So, because he has a dog at one point, and the dog gets bitten by a zombie, and he has to kill the dog because the dog would turn into a, a a zombie itself. And so, I'm like, that that was kind of an interesting little tidbit in an otherwise terrible movie. It was an interesting little tidbit where you're like, oh, well, yeah, how w- would this infect other animals? Would the zombie apocalypse, you know, would would there be dogs or cats or goats or or rabbits that are that are suddenly crazy?
0: Oh, that's right, yeah, and they did have the mice in there that were attacking the. The glass. Yeah, I yeah. forgot about that.
1: And they had, and uh, I was in the movie uh, Twenty Eight Days Later. I think the birds went bonkers in that
0: movie too. Oh wow, that's right, man. We could talk movies like just all night. <laughs> it, but... <laughs> I know. I, I slip
1: back and forth. You see how? See how? Uh, I'm a just I'm an eel in this in this show. I just slip in and <laughs> movies to the books. That's my life, I guess. <laughs>
0: I think you're you're going on record as the first guest I've ever had who called themselves an eel. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> oh man, Kevin, uh, this has been this has been a huge joy for me. I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, tell people where where can they find you? Well, the
1: best place to go to find me is just go to the movies. com. Uh, you can go to fatguysinthe slash books. You can see my my a link to my Amazon author page. If you go to Fat Guys of the Movie slash Radio, you can look up at the station list and you can find out if I'm anywhere in your area. If not, start calling your stations and say, "Hey, why don't you have this guy on your radio station? He's awesome." And do that enough times, and then maybe they'll 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 contact us. Uh, but that's the best place to find me. Or just go to any movie theater and look for the fat guy and say, "Hey, fatty," and throw a drink at me. And just make sure I
0: catch it. Oh, my gosh. Well, Kevin, it's been a blast. I've loved all this, getting to talk to you and hearing everything that you've got going on. you got a fantastic thing going, a great show, and I'm I'm loving all your books, and I can't wait to read more. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to hand the floor over to Mr. Kevin Carr with uh, – you're doing a short story from Ghost Readers, right, Paperweight? That,
1: that's right. The Ghost Readers is another – well, obviously, the Ghost Readers was the first story I mm-hmm. wrote, and that that's collected in the Ghost Readers and other stories, so you have – some of the published and unpublished stuff, but Paperweight is a story I'm going to do for you now. It's the complete story. It's a relatively short one, but uh, it can give you an idea. It also has stuff to do with movies. So, you know, hey, here I am, eeling my way into this again. Awesome.
0: All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Kevin Carr with Paperweight.
1: Thank you very much. Paperweight. Few things irritated Brick as much as someone using a cell phone in a movie theater. However... No matter how many public service announcements run before a movie and no matter how much the theater chain insists that it has a strict no phones policy in its cinemas, someone always manages to pull out their phone in the middle of the movie. What was worse for Brick was that he seemed to be the only person who bothered to do anything about it. Brick had no shame. He yelled at plenty of people from teenagers to senior citizens who decided their own short attention span was more important than the common courtesy to people around them trying to enjoy a film. Rick knew that he really had no room to talk when it came to following the rules that day. After all, he was playing hooky from work, taking an extra long lunch to catch a movie. He excused his own behavior on it being Friday before a long weekend and nothing really happened at his job on a Friday before the holiday. Still, he didn't mind shaving off an extra hour or so of his work day to catch a movie. He was a stickler for the often unenforced phone policy at his local theater. The offender, a stereotypical hipster with a ridiculous beard and black plugs that stretched to earlobes, sat two rows down from him and was likewise alone. Brick was set to stand up and say something to him when the man's phone suddenly went dark. He hadn't turned it off. Instead, it just simply stopped working. This was clear to Brick, and everyone else in the theater, when the man looked at it inquisitively, then smacked it on its side. He tried to turn it on a few more times, but the phone was clearly dead. Knowing the tendencies for some cell phones to abruptly die from battery issues, Brick initially didn't think much of it. However, something caught his eye at the moment the phone's bright screen went dark. Down the row from him, Brick saw a man in a beige sport coat, relaxing quietly. He was nondescript except for his actions at the moment the phone turned off. The man's right hand was extended out, making a finger gun that pointed directly at the phone user two rows ahead. He pulled his thumb trigger, which had perfectly synced with the phone turning off. As soon as that happened, while the offender was frantically trying to get his drug of choice to turn back on, the man in the beige sport coat held his index finger to his lips and blew on it as if it were a smoking gun. Rick could have sworn he heard the man whisper... Do you feel lucky, punk? It was an incident that Brick certainly thought was strange, but soon the glow of the large screen in front of him diverted his attention again. Brick was sucked back into the plot of the film and didn't think about the incident again for a while. A month later, there was another long weekend coming, and the Friday workload was considerably slow, as was tradition. Brick stole away to the neighborhood movie theater for on a long lunch hour to catch a flick. As was also tradition, within the first half hour of the film, some inconsiderate jerk a few rows ahead of him pulled out a cell phone. This time it was a middle-aged woman with two friends rather than the stereotypical hipster. As Brick had noticed over the years, this sort of behavior bridged all demographics. Rude people were everywhere. Brick rumbled and got ready to yell at the woman when her phone suddenly shut down. Immediately, Brick looked around. Sure enough, a few rows back was the man in the beige sport coat again. And again, he was blowing on his index finger, mouthing the words, Do you feel lucky, punk? This time, Brick couldn't get back to the film. Seeing something strange happen once was an oddity. However, when a virtually identical thing happens a second time, that's a pattern. Brick kept watching the man in the beige sport coat throughout the film. Unfortunately, he did nothing more than eat his popcorn, sip his soda, and leave as soon as the credits began to roll. Brick almost got up to chase him into the lobby and ask him what happened. But before he could get up, he realized how insane that would have sounded. He let it drop again. The third time Brick encountered the man in the beige sport coat was far more spectacular than the first two. This time it was in a neighborhood gas station, and it was late at night just before the bars closed. Brick had stopped in after filling his car to grab a few snacks for the late night of Netflix binge-watching. He was hovering around the chip's where he was searching for Port Cracklins when he saw the man in the beige sport coat come in. The man moved quietly and smoothly. He sauntered up to the counter and asked for a pack of Marlboros. The man's voice was like how he moved, quiet and smooth. It was almost hypnotic. The clerk reached into the dispensers overhead, pulled out a pack of cigarettes and set it on the counter. Before he could quote a price, the door of the store opened, and a disheveled man burst in. He carried a sawed-off shotgun close to his chest and pointed it at the clerk. Empty the register, man, the punk yelled. Things happened so quickly at this point. In a film, it would have been drawn out with slow-motion shots and suspense, but in real life, robberies happened in a matter of seconds. In fact, when everything was over, Brick hadn't moved at all and barely had time to speak. The clerk's arm shot up immediately, and he stepped back. He froze, unprepared to be staring down the barrel of a shotgun. Now, the robber yelled, and the clerk jumped back into motion, opening the register. The man in the beige sport coat probably could have stood there unassumingly and waited this out. Brick wasn't sure why he didn't. However, the man in the beige sport coat leaned into the robber and said in a smooth, soft voice, Come on, man, I just want my cigarettes. It was a dangerous move, to be sure. Even with a large weapon like a shotgun, which isn't ideal for close quarters, there was plenty of room for the robber to move. And move he did. The moment the man in the beige sport coat spoke, the robber took a step back and trained his gun on him. And then he pulled the trigger. Brick hadn't expected him to shoot. After so many years of watching movies and television shows in which the villains always give a second or third warning, Brick was unprepared for this to escalate. And escalate they did. Or rather they would have if the gun had fired. But it didn't. There was a click of the trigger and a stunned look on the face of the robber. Brick supposed he simultaneously was surprised he actually tried to shoot a man and terrified what was going to happen now that this didn't happen. The man in the beige sport coat moved quickly. He grabbed the business end of the shotgun and yanked it out of the robber's hand. As the man in the beige sport coat rather theatrically cocked the weapon repeatedly to cause the shells pop out and rattle on the floor, the robber turned away and ran. With the gun empty, the man in the beige sport coat set the shotgun on the counter and picked up a pack of cigarettes. How much, he asked casually. The clerk, still in a bit of shock, stammered, just, just take them. No charge, man. The man in the beige sport coat winked at him and pulled out a $5 bill. He set it on the counter and said, eh, ah, I insist. He then took the cigarettes and walked out the door. From that point forward, Brick was obsessed with finding this man with the beige sport coat. Back at the convenience store, he had quietly disappeared, but Brick had stuck around to help the clerk file a report. They were never able to identify the mysterious hero. Over the following weeks, Brick kept hoping that he would be identified on the security video at the convenience store, or possibly by his fingerprints on the shotgun left at the scene. However, as far as Brick knew, the man remained a mystery. What followed was Brick's own search for the man. He was clearly a local, because Brick had run into him several times in as many months. It wasn't a terribly scientific approach, but Brick figured if he wandered the neighborhood enough, he'd run into him again. Brick often took detours to the theater, even going as far as to buy a ticket on Friday afternoons, but not actually watching the movie. Instead, he'd sneak into various showings, trying to find the man in the audience. Brick also kept in touch with the clerk at the convenience store, asking him if he saw the man in the beige sport coat come in. The clerk never saw him again, and soon quit his job anyways. Coming face-to-face with a shotgun at minimum wage has a tendency to make one reevaluate his career choices. Even though Brick kept a rotating detail of local haunts around the neighborhood, the man in the beige sport coat eluded him. And then one day, Brick nearly tripped over him. Brick was actually in a rush, heading back to his car after snooping around the movie theater. He passed the coffee shop on the corner of the parking lot as he turned the corner and swerved just in time before he would have crashed into a wrought iron table. It was a beautiful spring day, warm enough to be comfortable, but not so burdened by the heat of the sun that would come in the summer. Sitting at the table, reading a copy of the New York Times, was the man in the beige sport coat. Brick regained his footing and stood up straight. He didn't say anything, but rather just stared at the man, amazed his quest to find him was suddenly over. The man in the beige sport coat looked at Brick for a moment, and then a wash of realization came to his eyes. Hugh, the man said. Brick nodded and pulled up a chair, taking a seat across from the man in the beige sport coat. Yes, Brick said. Me. The man in the beige sport coat squinted a bit and pointed at him. Movie theater, right? Brick nodded. And the convenience store, he added. The man smiled and nodded, leaning back from his paper and crossing his legs. I didn't know anyone else was in there. Again, Brick nodded. I was in the chips aisle. I would have come to you, but... It happened so fast, the man finished Brick's sentence as his voice trailed off. Yeah, Brick said. The man folded his arms, so he prompted. How did you do it, Brick asked. How did you turn off those phones, and how did you know the gun wouldn't go off? The man summed up Brick visually, then thought for a moment. He then shrugged and said, "Eh, Why not tell you? You won't believe me anyways. Try me. Okay, the man said. I caught an imp. "'Brick took a moment to let the words sink in. "'He thought about that, then added, "'Excuse me, an imp?' "'The man in the beige sport coat nodded. "'You mean like a leprechaun?' Brick asked, confused. "'Nothing so crass,' the man said, "'but the idea is the same.' "'Where the hell did you catch an imp?' "'I'm not about to tell you that. "'Do some research on your own if you're interested. "'They're really more trouble than they're worth.' "'Brick leaned forward, completely sucked into the story.' Do you have it? Do you still have it? He asked. The corner of the man's mouth curled up in a half-smile. Maybe. But that doesn't answer how you did the trick with the phones and the gun. The man nodded and leaned forward, matching Brick's posture. Some imps grant wishes, the man in the beige sport coat said. Not all of them, and usually there's some catch to it. But the one I caught granted me a wish. What's the catch? I'm not ready to cash in on that yet. Maybe I'll talk to you later about it, but right now, I'm okay with it's debt. What did you wish for? A power. I got one wish, so I wanted to make it worthwhile. Like a superpower, Brick asked. I suppose, the man in the beige sport coat replied, but I didn't want anything so childish as the ability to fly or super speed. I chose to have control over machines. Like the phones? Exactly, the man in the beige sport coat said. I can't take things over but I can make a machine stop working whenever I want to. Can you turn it back on? Brick asked. The man in the beige sports coat shrugged. Sometimes, but not always. I usually don't stick around long enough to try. Brick leaned back for a moment. It was an age-old question, something that any child who'd ever picked up a comic book had considered. If you could have one superpower, what would you wish for? The man in the beige sport coat smiled. I told you you wouldn't believe me. No, Brick said, his gaze falling away as he started to process his thoughts. I I believe you. It's a fantastic and absurd story, but I do believe you. The man looked back at Brick curiously. Then what are you thinking? Brick looked back at the man in the beige sport coat. "It It doesn't make sense, though, Brick said. That's not exactly a productive superpower, is it? The man looked offended suddenly. It took care of those phones in the movie theater, didn't it? Brick nodded. Yeah, sure it did. And don't get me wrong, nothing annoys me more than someone using a cell phone in a movie theater, but it's an annoyance. It's not exactly a crime. The man frowned. I see where this is going, he said. He no longer beamed in clever pride. His brow began to furrow. I mean, if I were given a choice of any superpower, Brick said, it wouldn't be that. You can't do much with that. What about the gun in the convenience store? The man asked, scowling. Yeah, the end result was good, but as fascinating as it was to watch, I couldn't shake the feeling that you just wanted to get your cigarettes and leave. The man nodded. That's true. Ever since I was a kid, Brick said, I dreamed of having a superpower. I suppose I would have chosen invulnerability or super strength. Think about all the good you could do with that. You could stop wars on an international basis, or maybe the power of premonition. You could avert huge disasters from terrorist threats or natural disasters like tsunamis that wipe out a quarter of a million people. The man in the beige sport coat let his hand fall on the table, atop his copy of the New York Times. He started to drum his fingers on the newspaper. I suppose your choice of superpower says something about you, he said. Exactly, Brick said. The ability to turn off the cell phone in a movie theater is more a matter of convenience for you than anything else. It doesn't make you much of a superhero. Suddenly there was a spark in the man's eye. He grinned and said, Who said I was a hero? Brick looked up at him, his jaw dropping. The man in the beige sport coat pointed his finger at Brick's chest and then started making a circular motion with it. Brick suddenly felt a flutter inside his chest. Funny things about machines, the man said with a mischievous grin. Not all machines are made of metal. The flutter in Brick's chest suddenly turned to pain. He could feel the increasing pump, pump, pump of fear start to pound in his ears as blood rushed through his body. The man in the beige sport coat stood up from the table and straightened his tie. Brick tried to respond in kind, but he suddenly lacked any energy to move. He felt his body start to slump. Goodbye the man in the beige sport coat said in his quiet, smooth, and uncharacteristically polite voice. As he turned to walk away, Brick heard the pump, pump, pump in his ears suddenly stop. A sharp pain stabbed through his chest and he felt like a deflated balloon. A moment later, Brick collapsed forward on the wrought iron table, landing atop the New York Times and losing
0: consciousness. The end. okay that was awesome that was kevin carr reading paperweight his short story from the ghost readers and other stories collection that was that was great i really loved it and yeah it's just one more book i'm gonna have to add to my collection hey make sure you do the same check out kevin on his website that is fat guys at the movies the website i'm gonna have the links in the show notes also don't forget to go to his website and pick up the audio version of his new story bedridden It sounds amazing. Don't forget to click that like button and follow our show, so that way each week you get to listen to a new author, a new story, and a new sample chapter. We'll see you next week. Have a great Halloween, everybody, and be safe. Bye.